beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. This is an interactive podcast. Each episode has a prompt and a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to your best friend, or answer on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. This week, last year, I released one of my very favorite episodes of this podcast, episode 77, What's Your Big Story? And in that episode, I'm asking you to think about what is the big story of your life? We all have one, one kind of main narrative, one thing that really defines a before and an after. It might not be a single event. In fact, it's often probably not. It's like a journey, if you will. And for some of us, our big story happened in our childhood, but it's really something that defines who we are or something that we point back to a lot. For some of us, we have a big story because we all already have one, but maybe we're waiting on a bigger story. We think our biggest story hasn't happened yet, and that might be true. You know that about yourself. For some of us, our big stories aren't even really true, like factually, but they're narratives that we've told ourselves or that someone made us believe about ourselves that have really affected our decisions, our identity. There's something 
that we feel stuck with instead of something that was chosen. I love that episode. I highly recommend you go back and listen to it. It's from August of 2020. It's episode number 77. I really think you might take a lot from it. But the reason that I released that episode in August is because this time of year always reminds me of my big story, the biggest story of my life, something that is such a crucial part of who I am and something that I reference time and time again as a choice and a transformation and all of those things. And that is moving to Los Angeles when I was 22 years old. I moved here after growing up in a really small town in Oklahoma. I moved here straight out of college. I had never been to Los Angeles when I decided to make it my home. And even though I didn't know then that this would be such an enormous moment in my life, I can see that as opposed to other parts of my story, other parts of my life narrative, it is something that I chose and it is something that affected every other part of my life going forward. Because of course, I stayed in LA and I built a career and I created a family. And so for me, there is quite a delineation between everything that happened before August of 2001 and everything that happened after. And if you're doing the math in your head, friend, you see that we are here in August of 2021. It is my 20-year anniversary of this huge move, this big story of my life. And so I'm thinking about it. I'm always thinking about it every August. And I wanted to bring this episode to you as a chance for you to share a little bit about the biggest year in your life, or if not a year, a season. This may or may not be your big story. For me, those two things go hand in hand, but they don't have to. But the prompt this week, what I want you to be thinking about, what I want you to share with someone else or take it to your journal, if you're not ready for this to be a conversation, is the biggest year of your life. And I realize that everyone is going to define this differently because the biggest year in your life may be a success story. It may be a story of grief. It may be an awakening. It may be a season of darkness. But when you look back at the biggest year in your life, and you know what? I am choosing year. I am choosing year over season a little deliberately now that I'm saying this because seasons can go on for a really long time. And a year is a defined moment in time. And I really want you to hone in on a year and not stay vague about the time period. I'm also thinking about years because, of course, next month we're going to honor and remember the lives that were taken and lost at the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. We're also still in this worldwide pandemic, which was defined by the year 2020. That was such a notable year. But 2021 is really giving that a run for its money. And so I want you to think about the biggest year in your life and why it was that, for better or worse. And then I want you to share that experience. I want you to pick a year and talk about what happened and why it mattered. This episode is releasing on August 10th. And so this is the 10 on the 10th prompt. We have a prompt every month on social media. If you follow the show at 10 things to tell you, 
This is the 10 on the 10th prompt, but even if you're listening to this later, you can answer these prompts, any of them, at any time. And I really want to hear from you on this one. If you choose to answer what was the biggest year of your life, please make sure you tag the show at 10 Things to Tell You. So the conversation I'm going to share with you today is special to me because it is about my big year, my move to Los Angeles in 2001. I did not make that move alone. Now, I did not make that move the way I thought I was going to with a boyfriend. That guy, he dumped me just after graduation, just moments before we were supposed to move to LA together. If you want more details on all of this, you can read more about this story and that breakup and all of these things in my book, Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First. But what ended up happening is I moved to LA with a sorority sister who was like basically a stranger to me. We did not know each other in college, even though we were in the same sorority, but we got to know each other real fast, which is what happens when you move to a city where you know no one and have no jobs, and it was very quick bonding. And so I had my friend and roommate from that time, and that friend, I'm going to call her Dr. Megan because she's a doctor and because her name is Megan. And Dr. Megan is someone who we truly walked side by side in absolutely the most transformative time of my life. Absolutely. And I couldn't have done it without her. I cannot separate that year of my life from her and from our friendship. We have a connection that is deep and forever. And even though we haven't lived in the same city for 19 years now, and have really only seen each other a handful of times in the last 19 years, I still feel like she knows me on such a soul level. Like maybe knows a part of me that no one else will ever know because she was a witness and a confidant and a friend during this really important time. Dr. Megan is now a doctor. She lives in Texas. She's a wife. She's a mom of two. She is smart and funny. And she joins me today to talk about our year together. If you have someone in your life who was there for you during your big year, I'm going to give you an additional assignment this week. Instead of just talking about the most important year of your life, I want you to reach out to that person. I want you to say thank you. I want you to say I miss you. I want you to say thank you for being there for me. I say all of those things to my dear friend, Dr. Megan. But we also end up talking about a lot of other things about this really transformational year in our life. Side note, I am at the lake this week. She was also on vacation recording on her iPad. The audio quality for this particular conversation is not the best you'll ever hear. Just giving you that disclaimer, but sometimes it's worth it for these great conversations. So thanks for listening. I hope this episode is interesting and makes you think about your own life and who was there for the rest of the week. With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating, and yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. 
I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben free. It is also pH balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, Dot com and use code U, Y-O-U. Y'all know that I love to play games on my phone to unwind, and I am always looking for a new one to download. And I recently ran across Two Dots, and I want to tell you about it. Two Dots is a free-to-download, puzzle-based game that involves connecting dots through relaxing puzzles while unlocking levels and collecting prizes along the way. There are different gameplay modes to make the experience unique and exciting with every single puzzle. There are over 5,000 distinct puzzles with various power-ups and special dots ready to earn as you move through the levels. The in-app music and visually stimulating interface provide a soothing experience when you just want to relax and unwind. Not only is Two Dots free to download, but it can also be played without internet connection. So playing on the go offline is a breeze. And if you don't want to play alone, you can challenge your friends on Facebook, as well as connect with the larger Two Dots community for even more engagement. If you're looking for the perfect game to help you relax, but also keep you engaged, download Two Dots for free on Android and iOS. Well, okay. I'm ready to start. Are you ready? We're just starting. Okay. I just like to yeah, jump in. Let's start. I'm kind of calling this episode, tell me about the biggest year of your life, because this is a huge part of my story. I talk about moving to LA as like a really major part of my life, like the most major part of my life. And it wasn't just moving. It was like really that, that whole year of moving from Oklahoma to Los Angeles and living with you. And we're here we are in August of 2021, exactly 20 years ago. How did that happen? I don't how know. 20 years? I don't know how we're here, but <sighs> I was wondering if you think that it's the biggest year in your life or is this just my story? <laughs> I was thinking about this when you told me what we were talking about and I think yes and no. I think if you had asked me five years ago, I would have said maybe. 10 years ago, I would have said definitely that was the biggest year of my life. But I think it, in my story, it was one of the big years of my life. And it springboarded me into, into the possibility of a lot of other parts of my life that became big and important. Um, it changed me in ways that became important for future decisions that made me more comfortable with future decisions or made me think about future decisions differently. So yes and no, was it the biggest year of my life? But I also was only there for a year. It became home for you. It became the big transition from Oklahoma to LA. And I've had a lot of transitions between LA and where I am now. Yeah, yeah, that's totally true. Is that what happened after that year for the two of us was really different. But let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about, August 2001, let's just set up why we were even 
doing this whole crazy thing. I was moving from Oklahoma straight out of the sorority house, straight Mm -hmm. out of my cap and gown from the University of Oklahoma, (laughs) moving to LA sight unseen. Mm -hmm. What were you doing? So I was also leaving basically straight from cap and gown. In retrospect, I was running away a little bit. Um, I decided to postpone my med school applications for a year. At the time, I said it was because I wanted a break or I wanted to do something fun before med school started. But also, I think it was because I had always followed the prescribed path my whole life. I decided when I was, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there that I was going to be a doctor. And everything that I did from that point until the summer of 2001 was on that path. Um, And sometime in my senior year of college, I think I got burnt out and I wanted to jump off that treadmill. I wanted to get off that prescribed path. I didn't know if it was going to be short term or forever, but I felt like I needed to do something different, something big, something that was my own decision that nobody I knew had made before a decision that my parents were not actively encouraging, (laughs) that my grandparents were not actively encouraging. And uh, it was scary, but also not scary at all because I was so ready. Um, So I was coming from that place of, of what else is out there besides small town, then to college, then to med school. Uh, I wanted something different. Did you have any fears that this was going to derail you from your med school path? Not when we first left, which I should have. (laughs) I got very close to being derailed. And I don't know how much we ever talked about this, but during my first year of med school, I was so close to moving back to LA. I was, I mean, days away from just getting in my car and driving back. But not at the beginning. I never, I never thought that it would derail me at all. I thought that was my path and I was just doing this one fun thing before it started. And then do you remember how we were kind of paired up to have this adventure together? Because we weren't strangers. We were acquaintances. We'd been sorority sisters, but we, but did we not were not know one barely, another. We were barely acquaintances. I mean, we definitely had vastly different friend groups for the first two years. I guess we should say that I was only at Oklahoma for two years. I left after my sophomore year and transferred to a different school. And during those two years, we had pretty different friend groups. We had a couple of friends who overlapped. And one of the people who I kept in close contact with after my transfer was one of those overlapping friends. And I don't remember how I had the conversation with her about moving to LA. I think sometime when I decided that I wasn't going to apply to med school that year, um, the beginning of my senior year, I just decided out of the blue, out of nowhere, I'm either moving to New York or to LA. I just want to go to one of those two cities. You know, I was going to go and I was going to go big. And if I had to go by myself, I would. But then I think somehow LA came up in the conversation and she mentioned that she was also moving to LA. And so that made the decision East coast or West coast for me. And then you were close friends with her, I think. And you guys had also been having that discussion. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of, I hadn't thought about this aspect of it, but I came home from studying abroad the summer before my senior year of college. And I told Mm -hmm. everybody that whole first semester, 
of my senior year of college, I told everybody, like, I'm moving to Los Angeles. I'm moving to Los Angeles. I'd never been to Los Angeles, P.S. But this <laughs> is sort of like a example of when you, you can almost like speak it into existence. Now I'm not you like a total, it. I manifested it, even though I hate that word. And I don't, I do not for the record, wholeheartedly like believe in manifestation. I really don't. But I think there is something to saying something out loud as a way of holding yourself accountable or as a way Absolutely. of like bringing it into existence because, you know, your ego has, has put it out there. And it also puts you in touch with other people who want to be on the same path because I wouldn't, I wasn't in touch with you in any way. And so if I hadn't been talking about it, nobody would have said, oh, Hey, Megan also wants to, to do something fun after graduation. And we never would have been matched. Well, and it's funny because I think if you had told me, pick one of your sorority sisters who would be willing to move to LA with you. I don't think that Laura would have been the first name that came to my mind. And again, because we just didn't know each other. Um, We didn't know each other well enough to know that that's who we are. But to what you were saying about holding yourself accountable, I think it's true. I like to think that I would have made the leap. I would have moved to New York or LA without having someone to make the plan with and to push me into it. Um, But once I made the commitment to you guys, I kind of felt like I was stuck in the best way. But my personality, I never would have backed out. I never would have shown my fear. I was on that road. Same. Mm -hmm. I also felt like once I'd made the commitment and once I had someone to do it with me, that was also helpful. Even even if you were a virtual stranger, we had sort of made this commitment and we were going to stick to it. But that brings me to what we did know about one another when we decided to be roommates in a city we'd never been to. What we did know was we were really different and you were like, going to be a doctor. I was the opposite of going to be a doctor. I was like, I'm going to move to LA and work at Starbucks, which I never did. I never worked at Starbucks. (laughs) But that's hilarious because I remember that quote that that's, you're like, I don't care what I do. I'm going to work at Starbucks. I heard that many times. (laughs) Yeah. We're just, we're just very, very different. Did that give you pause? Not at all. And maybe because I just at 22 years old, didn't really know a lot of people like me, period. I mean, maybe I still don't know a lot of people like me. Um, But most of the people I'd been friends with through high school and college were very different from me in a lot of personality traits. So I almost, I don't know that I appreciated it as much at the time, but I think I was excited because you were different from the people I was in my biology classes with and the people who were going to med school that year or the people who were going to law school or whatever it was. So I was thinking about our difference as a positive for me to maybe pull me out of that or help me be more like you, maybe. (laughs) Oh gosh. I hope that was not (laughs) the goal. I will say it never gave me pause either, but only because I think I'm a really good judge of character. Does everybody think they're a really good judge of character? (laughs) No, but I really do. I like genuinely think that I can tell, not necessarily if I'm going to like someone or, you know, I'm not psychic, but I think I can tell if a person, like I have an intuition about people and 
you know, my main intuition about you was what we just said, like you were solid, like you weren't going to back out. And actually by the time that we committed to one another, which was in the spring, a few months before we moved, I'd had several people throughout that senior year of me blah, blahing on in college talking about moving. I'd had several people say they were going to move and back out, not -hmm. to mention the boyfriend that I was supposed to move with. And so by the time I met you, I felt like, okay, this is someone who's actually going to do what she says she's going to do. And Mm -hmm. at that moment, for this particular adventure, commitment to the adventure was like, the number one prerequisite. You know what I mean? I was like, okay, all right. Yes. That's all yeah. I need. The rest of it we'll figure out, you know? I very clearly remember meeting you in the Dallas airport because I flew from Little Rock and I think you drove down and then we were going to fly to LA together um, when we were going to go look for a place. And this was the first time that we had been in the same room together in two years. And I remember being anxious and we sat at the gate and we had a while, I think before our plane took off or something, but I, I just remember that that conversation in Dallas put me at ease as far as you and I making it work together. And I think it's because even though you said how different we were, we were really similar in some ways that mattered. I connected with you because you're also a small town girl. I'm a small town, Arkansas girl. You were small town, Oklahoma. A lot of our small town values were still there, but we were also just like clawing to get out of that and to get away mm-hmm. from that. And um, And maybe that's why I felt so comfortable after that 30 minute conversation or whatever it was in my head. I was like, okay, we're going to do this. This is going to work. We're going to be okay. You know, I don't remember that conversation in the airport that you're saying, but I remember the flight and, you know, flying out to LA for the first time Mm -hmm. with you. And I remember on the flight thinking, Shoot, I'm gonna cry. Hold on. I think why. (laughs) Sorry. Like, why I wasn't nervous to meet you in the airport, why I don't even remember that conversation is because I remember thinking on the airplane, do you think she sees how broken I am? Because I, that summer, was so broken. And I was really numb. And I've written about this story a hundred ways about, I don't think I would have been able to make this huge change in my life if I had been fully awake, if I had been fully aware and mindful. I was almost able to do it because I was so numb and so sad that I was just like, I didn't care. Like I was, I mean, looking back, I was clearly depressed, but I didn't care. I just I mean, I wanted to find an apartment. Like I wanted to like sort of do the basics, pay my rent and whatever. But like, other than that, I I did not have feelings. I mean, I was truly as numb, Mm -hmm. as, as dead inside as I've ever been in my whole life. And did you know that? (laughs) It's hard to suss that out because I know so much more now, not just after that year of living together and talking through and knowing what you were going through, but also after having read what you've written about it and heard what you've said about it so many times through the years. So it's hard to separate that out a little bit. So I don't want to be disingenuous by saying, oh, I definitely knew that. But I knew you were sad. You know, when he backed out, I remember that being really, really, I mean, obviously it wasn't just the backing out of it, move to Los Angeles, but it was the breakup. But I remember that just devastating for you. 
And you were still in that place during that flight in Dallas for sure. But also I am a fixer, which is good and bad in a lot of ways. But my instinct was to see that in you and put my arms around in you and say, okay, it's my job to make this okay. We're going to do this. We're going to find this apartment. We're going to, we're going to make it happen. And it was as much for you as for me at that point. Cause yes, I did see that you were broken. I didn't know how bad it was because honestly, 22 year old me would have been like, I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> this clearly depressed 22 year old brand new friend of mine. But, um, so I didn't know the depth of it, but I knew that you weren't completely whole at that time. But my 22-year-old optimistic fixer self is like, it'll be great. We'll move to LA. It'll be fine. <laughs> I'll fix it. It's not every day that you find a product that you truly love and want to shout about from the rooftops. Well, friends, I have found something that I am genuinely excited to share with you today, and that is Born Shoes. Born Shoes are made with the best top quality leather with functional stitching and flexibility. They are lightweight, but they're also supportive. They are great for all casual occasions, extremely comfortable, and especially good for travel. The brand recently gifted me a pair of the Ithaca style sandals. Of course, they are beautiful. The footbed has extra foam for added comfort and with a slight heel for lift. I am positive that I could walk all over London in this pair of shoes, just like I did in my Born Sandals last summer. Born Shoes offers sandals, flats, boots, and heels in several styles and color choices. Take comfort in Born Shoes. Every season, they make high-quality shoes that feel as good as they look. With artistic touches, unparalleled craftsmanship, and exquisite materials, Born designs shoes to satisfy the demands of every lifestyle. Go to bornshoes.com for a 15% discount plus free ground shipping on all full-price shoes when you use my promo code TELL. That's born, B-O-R-N, shoes, S-H-O-E-S, dot com and use promo code TELL, T-E-L-L, for 15% off and free shipping, available exclusively to our listeners for a limited time. We're so excited. And we went back and she had a magazine on her coffee table. And I laid down to take a nap or something. I was super exhausted. I, I remember I was laying. That's what stands out to me about this. And I picked up this magazine and in it was printed this poem by Mary Oliver called The Journey. I remember it. I remember it. It was Oprah magazine, wasn't it? It was an Oprah magazine, I think. <laughs> and I think it was. I mean, like how many parts of this story are going to be cheesy? I don't even care. This is like so real. In that Mary Oliver poem, like it starts off with, well, I'm just going to read part of it. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. And it goes on. And I'll put the whole poem in the show notes. It ends with, determined to do the only thing you could do determined to save the only life that you could save. And <laughs> I read that poem and I'm not mocking the poem. I love Mary Oliver. Poetry's great. I read that poem and I felt like just like when you, you know, hear the song at the right time or you're, you know, whatever, like I was like, this is speaking to me on such a deep level. It was like a sign. I really took it as a sign for like, this is, I mean, the poem is literally called the journey. <laughs> like I was like, this is my journey. <laughs> well, it's so funny because, and this is, this tells you a little bit about the difference in our personalities too, but I think you showed it to me and 
I have a copy of that poem somewhere that I've kept because of that. But I remember being like, oh yeah, cool. Okay. All right, cool. That works. <laughs> Whereas it was changing your soul. <laughs> totally. totally and was. I was like, all right, what's for lunch? <laughs> That's so funny. Okay. So we moved to LA in August of 2001, a couple of months after we both graduated. And then, you know, unfortunately for our country, a mere three weeks later, maybe a full four weeks later was 9-11. Yeah. And I just, we'd only lived together. We were still getting to know one another. We, you know, lived mm-hmm. together about a month in this fantastic apartment, by the way, that we stumbled into. It's a beautiful building on Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. On Hollywood Boulevard that I like literally still look at lovingly when I drive (laughs) down the street. It was such an amazing, beautiful two bedroom, (laughs) amazing situation, but we were so broke. We didn't even like have a couch yet. I don't think we definitely didn't have a TV. So I write about this story a little bit in my book, but what do you remember about the morning of September 11th? So you remember that we didn't have a TV, but actually I remember it differently um, because I had one in my room, but we didn't have any cable. We could only get like analog. We could get like two channels analog. Right. Um, Because what what I remember is the phone ringing at six something in the morning after the plane had hit the first tower and the friend who called us said, turn on the TV right now, turn on the TV right now. And I remember hastily trying to get a channel. And then I remember seeing the second building get hit in real time. I don't think you were in the room. I think you were on the phone with her still kind of trying to figure it out back and forth, but we didn't have a great signal. I think it was staticky, but that will never leave me. (laughs) That, that is, yeah. So I remember that happening because she called us almost right away. To wake yeah, us she up. called first thing. Of course, knowing the time change that we probably wouldn't be up and probably wouldn't know that mm-hmm. the the world was changing in yeah. that very moment. I remember thinking I was I was working for a temp agency at the time, and they would call you like at six in the morning to say if you mm-hmm. had a work assignment that day. And so yeah. when the phone rang, I assumed it was that, and I was still asleep, but I wasn't alarmed or anything at the hour. And so it was just like very, you know, obviously it was shocking. And then later that day, we went to a friend's house, also sort of an acquaintance, the older brother of a college friend. This is not his real name, but I call him Eddie in my book. I have to interject there a little bit because you were still with the temp agency, but I was working for the BBC at that time. I had to go to work. But didn't they send you home? Like in the afternoon, we were there. Because it, there were no Americans working there. So they weren't, I mean, I feel like the United States had completely shut down and the British were still making a TV show. It was bizarre. Um, and then one of our good friends was also a PA on the show. And she and I were just like, what are we doing here? Why are we at work? Can we go home? And we kept not getting sent home. And then finally in the afternoon, when they realized that no one else in the city of Los Angeles was working, then I think I met you at Eddie's. Now that you say that, that does ring a bell. Yeah. Because I was like, what do I do? Do I drive to work? Because I remember the drive to work and how weird it was because everybody was just obviously listening to the radio in their car and just staring straight ahead. And, you know, it it was just the most bizarre commute. Um, And then we were talking about it when we got to work, but it was kind of 
weirdly not affecting the office as much as it should have. Um, and then finally they let us go. And I think I met you at Eddie's because you couldn't be alone in the apartment on that day. Or you didn't want to, or I didn't want you to, or we both didn't want you to or something. Um, but yeah, that was crazy. What a crazy time that was. Um, I want to talk about a really formative relationship that we built very early on when we moved to LA. This is your family friend who would eventually help us get these production assistant jobs mm-hmm. and his wife at the time. And, you know, there are people that come into your life at a certain season that are just, they really define a season for you, or they're really like such a huge part of it. You just like can't even separate that time from certain people mm-hmm. or whatever. And for me, this couple was a huge part of, especially those first, that that beginning time of being in LA when we knew no one and they kind of showed us how to be in the city. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. we didn't know how to be in the, neither one of us had ever lived in a city. <laughs> especially um, not Los Angeles. I don't want to use their full names because I, I haven't asked them for permission to talk about them on, on this show. And it's been a real long time, everybody. So we'll just call them T and C. Those are their initials. And um, yeah, what do you remember about T and C? I'm bringing this up because it it really is a really important part of this time. Like if I had to list 10 things about this year, I mean, they would be like in the top three, I think. Absolutely. Things that come to mind when I think of how I saw them in that time. One of the first things that they taught me that I'd never really had a necessity to learn previously was that they felt to me like family. Their home felt to me like home. When I was having a bad week, if I drove to their house and and sat on their couch and, you know, ate whatever C had made for us, it felt like family. Um, And I think that has been a really good lesson for me through my whole life of how to be family for someone when they need you. I also remember them sort of being an example for how to adult, kind of what you saw, what you said is um, they taught us how to be, how to live in a city, but they also kind of in a way taught us or taught me how to adult. They had a home that they had renovated and decorated and they were raising their family there. And, and other than my parents' friends, I didn't really know any adults yet. And so it was a different way to adult than my parents had adulted, I guess. That's true. And because I was looking forward to, you know, maybe not a whole lifetime in Los Angeles, but at that time I was planning to be there for a while. They felt like ahead of me on the path. You know, they were married, they had Mm -hmm. a baby. Like you said, they had this beautiful home. And so I thought, oh, this is what a future in Los Angeles could look like for me. And that was like goals, you know, like hashtag goals, because everything seemed so beautiful about their situation. Like most importantly, not most importantly to them, I'm sure, but, but for (laughs) me was they did this thing that it served as an example to me, like to this moment, they had Sunday waffles. Wait, am I saying it right? Is that what they had? It was Sunday waffles. You want to say pancakes because you do Sunday pancakes. You know, God, so <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Sunday waffles. They had 
Sunday waffles, which if anyone follows me on Instagram, you know that in my family, I do a very ritualistic Sunday pancakes. But this started with this couple that took Megan and I in under their wing when we first moved here. And they did it probably as a favor to their family friend. But then we built these like really beautiful relationships. So on Sundays, they had this beautiful home that was open and bright light. I just remember. And the wife, C, she was a caterer. She's a chef. She's like really amazing in the kitchen. But everybody can make waffles, right? Like it's not, it's not hard to make. And so she would put everybody to work. And it was just an open invitation every single Sunday to all of their friend circle that there was going to be Sunday waffles. And it was like clockwork. And it was every week. And every week you and I were there, there were different people who came. (laughs) If I remember, it was no RSVP necessary. I mean, every now and then people would tell them they're coming or not, but they never really knew who was coming. No, Um, sometimes it was just just us. us. (laughs) And sometimes it was 20 people. And they were just cool with it, however it happened. Yeah, that was what's kind of magical about it being waffles. Is it's like as long as you have enough batter, you can, you know, like Jesus, you can feed the <laughs> masses, or you can just feed your little family. And it was like I had never before seen that kind of like voluntary community and voluntary hospitality. Like that did not exist in my world. Hospitality, like required a lot of planning, a lot of perfection. This just sort of open door on Sunday mornings, we will be serving waffles. Come if you want, you know, stay as long as you want. Now that I look back, it, a lot of those people who came to Sunday waffles at their house was, it was a collection of people who were lonely. You know, that mm-hmm. was their main social interaction that week. It was people who were broken like I didn't clock that exactly at the time. Looking back, I can see, oh, they were they were a touchstone for so many people, not just us. And those Sunday waffles, you could come at nine and leave at two. I mean, it was like the most open door yeah. thing you've ever heard. And, and we I, did. And we did, man, maybe even longer. <laughs> I I learned so much from that. I don't know. What do you remember about that? Or did that make as much of an impression on you as it did on me? It didn't make as big of an impression on me at the time. Again, this is one of the things that I have gone back to in retrospect over the years. And it has made more of an impression to me now that I have my own home and my own family and am sort of adulting on my own. At the time, it was like, oh, waffles on Sunday. Awesome. We'll be there. Free food. We'll take it. But I didn't realize at the time how special it was. Again, because I didn't know, like maybe everybody who is a 30 something in Los Angeles does something cool like this. I don't know. But in retrospect, yeah, I think it was an amazing thing that they did that kept them really connected to people who they might not otherwise have been connected to. You know, they had a young child. They couldn't just run out to dinner with somebody whenever they wanted or, you know, their their life was not completely their own anymore. And so they opened their home so that people would come to them and so they could stay connected with this group. You know, different personalities, different jobs, different levels of success. Also, another thing I want to say is that it taught me is C never worried that her home was perfect for her guests. Her home was what her home was. And like going back to what you said about there was always a lot of planning and perfection. And, you know, I never saw her run around dusting things before the Sunday waffles guests showed up. 
it was, this is our home. This is how we live. Please come in, step over the toys. But is it easier to be that way if your home is super cool? I mean, I'm just being honest. (laughs) I think so. Well, I mean, everything about, at the time, everything about them was super cool. You know, the home was cool. Their art was cool. Their kid was cool. The kids' toys were cool. But yeah, I think it is easier to be that way if your home is at its baseline, just cool. (laughs) Yeah. Like people are going to think it's awesome, even if there's, it's messy, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Do you want to talk about working on Jackass together? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay so oh, I mean I, I think we can't not talk about it because that was that was the thing right that's what changed us both the most I think even probably I mean obviously it changed my life but well, here's the timeline folks Megan and I moved to Los Angeles in August we both had a series of jobs throughout that fall obviously the country was in turmoil over 9-11 it was a strange season for everybody But then towards the end of the year, as we approached the holidays, I was working on a holiday special, Tom Green special, actually, uh, for MTV. And the producer of that special was going to start right after the first of the year on Jackass the Movie for Paramount. And he asked me to come work on it. And then he also asked me, like, if there was anyone else I knew who would want to work on it. Or did he ask, or did I say, Hey, I have a roommate that also needs a job. I don't know, but it came up. So however it worked out, you and I both ended up in January, 2002, starting on Jackass, the movie. And (laughs) we did, I had not seen one episode of Jackass, the TV show. I think I had heard the name Johnny Knoxville because a guy I casually dated my senior year of college thought the show was hilarious, but he could not twist my arm hard enough to watch a show with him. And I could not have rolled my eyes harder at those boys every time they walked through the door for the first month of my job. Didn't they know I was a serious human being? <laughs> I mean, well, right. You yeah. were going to go be a doctor and this was <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, I was the same. Like I was just as snobby about it. Like, I was like, I can't believe, you know, I, I was like, I can't believe this is my job. I can't believe these guys get paid to do this. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I'm, but I'm so glad that we shared that very insane experience because Megan, while I was a more general production assistant, you were the actual personal assistant on the movie to mm-hmm. Johnny Knoxville and the sweet, cute man who would become my husband, Jeff Tremaine. They shared an assistant for many, many years. And one mm-hmm. of those assistants was you. Was me. Lucky me. Um, in retrospect, some of the best seven months of my life. But yeah, it was hilarious because I was 22 years old. And was basically in charge of those boys in a weird, very real way. I I specifically remember sitting down at one point and Jeff dropped a big folder on my desk and said, I need you to figure out my health insurance. I was 22. I was on my parents' health insurance. (laughs) That's all, you know. And it was like this big pamphlet of HMO and PPO and, and, you know, but I did. I I looked it up and figured it out and, (laughs) 
Can I just remind you that you're calling them boys? Jeff Tremaine at that time was literally 35 years old. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I thought of them. I, th- I, I literally thought of them as teenagers that I was babysitting, basically. I mean, I would yeah. have to like physically snap Johnny from doing push-ups on the floor to answer a major phone call of, you know, someone at Paramount, like get off the floor. This is an important phone call. Turn your iPod down, you know, <laughs> God. and the same with Jeff. I mean, I'm not, Jeff's not off the hook on that in any way, shape or form. And when the other guys came in the office, it was over. <laughs> no work was getting done. Do you tell people now, like obviously Jackass became like a huge part of my life and my like mm-hmm. daily, but for you, because that was like a real, a real detour in what would become your very professional life. Do you tell people that you worked on the first Jackass movie or do you leave that? People part love out? It. it. No, it's still one of, I mean, it's like a great story to tell and people are always so interested and it's, it's like a fun thing to bust out at parties, you know? And then people are like, you know, they always had the same questions. What was it like? Did you have fun? But yeah, it's, it's a weird blip in the timeline for me which in ways makes me sad uh, because it was so much fun. And I learned a lot, not to get too serious, but I learned a lot about first impressions. I learned a lot about creativity. I learned a lot about how people's brains work really differently. That the way my brain works is not the only way that a brain can work to be successful. Yeah, so it taught me a lot and it taught me, I relaxed a lot. I was really uptight. I'm, I'm still kind of, you know, a type A person, um, but I was holding on so tightly to following the rules and doing all the right things. And I, I mean, I guess we all relax as we get older anyway, but that span of time, I relaxed a lot and I, I let myself have a lot more fun towards the end of my stint as the personal assistant than I ever imagined that I probably would have. And I definitely credit Jeff and Johnny for that too. Like they, they chilled me out a lot. I relaxed a lot also. And I also completely changed what I would have defined as a good person. Mm-hmm. Because prior to that, mm-hmm. my life experience told me that good people, loving people, smart people did not engage in all kinds of <laughs> activities. You know, I thought that being good really looked a certain way. And when literally I met, looked a certain way, right? No, like, literally, literally yeah. you look a certain way, you behave a certain way, you dress a certain way, you carry yourself a certain way. Your language is a certain type of language, right? Yeah. And, and I really, I felt very strongly about that. I mean, I, you could have put a gun to my head and I would have really espoused a very strong feeling about what being good was. And when I met these people who are so far off of what culture and the world tells us good is, I mean, you know, it's no secret that in that, in the larger picture of, of that world, there is a lot of naughty behavior. And I, but I also saw in that time and in the years since enormous acts of generosity, enormous, like things of integrity. And these are, these are stories that are never public. They're not done 
for the public eye. In public, they're purposely bad, right? Like, the, you know, but behind the scenes, I was like, oh, these, they think it's hilarious to be seen as so bad on the screen when not every single one of them, but for the most part, these are good hearted, thoughtful, loving, and PS, yes, very smart humans. And for me, that was like, I mean, I couldn't a crash course in that particular lesson because it was so extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also too, again, this is a little bit in retrospect, but immediately with those guys, I, I felt so protected by them. And it wasn't just Jeff and Johnny. It was mostly them because I sat at their desk, you know, at the front office of their desk every day, but they would have done anything for us. Mm-hmm. They, you know, even from very early on, they had us and that they, they were another sort of family without family or family different from family, I guess. Yeah. And don't you think that is, that alone is what made a huge difference in this big, important year that we're talking about? Because, you know, I had a lot of friends or acquaintances, and then obviously LA is very famous for this, for people kind of not being able to hack it. And they, they have to move home. Um, this is a common story in any city, maybe not just LA, but like you see, you're seeking something when you set off on this type of adventure and it's, it can be so hard and expensive and demoralizing and all of these things. And and you understand why some people are just like, God, this is not, I don't want this much struggle or whatever, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stories like that. And I can see myself also not have been able to hack it. In a city like Los Angeles, if we had not that first year fallen into two situations that felt like family, this couple mm-hmm. on a social level, this couple, TNC, and then these jobs that we got, you know, less than six months in on a movie that felt like family. And, you know, I used to sort of be judgy about people, not not sort of judgy, but yeah, like kind of felt superior to people who like came to LA and couldn't hack it, for example. It's so common. And, but now I'm like, oh my God, I'm the luckiest person that ever walked the face of the earth. The only reason that I thrived was because I, I fell in with people who took care of me. I mean, like after Jackass, Mm -hmm. Jeff took me on to another TV show that he made and whatever. And that's how I stayed employed. Not solely. I, eventually after some experience got other jobs, but like, that's luck, you know, that's just luck. And I don't know. I, I think now that give I'm yourself in my... a little credit there, Laura, I would say give yourself a little bit of credit there because had you not been someone he wanted to carry on, you would have not gotten carried on. Maybe luck was getting your foot in the door, but you, you didn't stick around out of luck. Well, I mean, yeah, like I'm an, nice person and I'm a hard worker. So like the producer who I met first, who then took me on to Jackass and then from Jackass, I got another job after that. Like all the stepping stones, they sort of, you know, work together. But Mm -hmm. I think I acknowledge the luck piece of it way more than I used to. And now that I'm in my forties, 20 years down the road, I feel like who can I help out in this same way or, you know, do a yeah. favor, offer some food, you know, whatever, whatever the equivalent is of like making someone feel like family if they're new, like that kind of thing. 
I think about it differently because of that. Mm -hmm. I I mean, that's one of the big takeaways, I think, from, you know, when we were talking about TNC earlier, Um, but then also the jackass guys was, you know, what can you do to reach out a hand and give someone a step up? Because we certainly owe it to the universe. (laughs) We certainly got our fair share of, of help. You said at the beginning that this year, this year in your life being in Los Angeles, because you left, you literally said almost exactly a year when our lease was up. I did. You went to med school, like you said you were going to, but you said at the beginning that this singular year did inform some of your decisions in the future. What Mm -hmm. did you mean by that? A couple couple of things that I meant by that. Number one, in a very literal way, it informed my moves in the future. Um, so I ended up going to medical school in Atlanta, which was a big city where I knew absolutely no one, not even a sorority sister who I didn't really know. <laughs> um, and I wasn't afraid of that at all. I was really sad to leave Los Angeles. It was very difficult for me to leave. I mean, we were it was just the worst timing for me to leave because we had wrapped the movie and all the fun things were starting to happen with promoting the movie and the premiere and all of that coming up while I was gone. Um, but I wasn't afraid of the move and I wasn't afraid of a big city and finding myself in a big city and finding a friend group in a big city. Um, and then I did it again after four years of med school. Um, my first year of post-med school training was my intern year and I went to New York and I didn't know anybody. And I moved into an amazing apartment right by Union Square. I walked to work every day and I was terrified and intimidated of the city for two weeks and it was great. And so that was hugely influenced by our move to Los Angeles because we'd done it. I'd done it once and it was fine. It was okay. And I I don't want to overlook the privilege that you and I both shared of having, having a fallback. If Los Angeles didn't work out for us, our families were there. We, it would have been so easy for us to pick up the pieces and make a different decision and do something else, which a lot of people do not have that safety net. And that is such a privilege that we both, you know, even though we were broke, we would not have starved to death. We would have not have not been able to leave Los Angeles. We would have not been out on the streets. So understanding that this quote unquote bravery that we have (laughs) comes with a massive amount of privilege. And it was the same way for my move to Atlanta and my move to New York. Um, So that was one way that LA largely influenced me. But I think the biggest way other than the the literal way is the way I choose my friends has been so different. And that comes with age too, I think. I want you to say more about that. And I will agree with you before you go on that our stories here are laced with privilege. I mean, like the whole, the whole thread of it is like, you know, (laughs) I never hide that on this show or in any part of my writing or anything that there's a hundred ways that my luck had nothing to do with, with me. You know, it was a a million ways that it is full of that. So yeah, I'm glad you said that, but tell me more about how it informed your friendships. Kind of what you were talking about earlier, what, what we touched on earlier, that we realized that there's more than one way to be good. There's more than one way to be the right kind of person or a good person or a good friend. Previously, I would have only initially maybe sought out people who looked like me or were from the same place as me or who had similar ideals as me. For example, one of my first friendships in med school was a guy who commented on my DC backpack that Jeff had given me (laughs) as a gift. And I was like, someone in Atlanta who knows DC. 
you know, the skater company. And so I was instantly like, instead of previously, I would have been like, oh, this guy is not similar to me. This is, this guy is probably not someone who I'm going to have a lot in common with, but we were friends right away. Um, and so it just left me much more open-minded to the kind of people who I could connect with, the kind of people who could be large parts of my life. I guess I, I don't really want to say it is that I was more open to relationships, but I sought out friendships and relationships with people who were different from me because I found that they were more interesting, that people who mm-hmm. had backgrounds different from me had something to teach me and they were more interesting and more fun and they made me a better person. And I think the way that not just Los Angeles, but especially the jackass guys changed me was something that I saw as such a positive change that I couldn't wait for other people to change me in positive ways like that. The, you know, the small town upbringing was so good in so many ways, but um, I knew that I wanted to be someone different than who I was when I graduated from high school or even college. And um, I learned that people different from me were how I was going to get there, how I was going to become that person who was different from who I was at 18 or 22. Oh, that's so good. That is so good. And it kind of brings me to when I was doodling out, like I uh, journaling before we had this conversation about what about this year, you know, made a huge impact, what has stayed with me or whatever. And one of the things that I wrote was I wanted reinvention and I got it. And then I started laughing because I was like, I mean, did I get it? Like, because I, was like, I laughed at that too. When you said that to me, <laughs> because in my mind, I was really seeking an identity change coming out of college. I really wanted a total reinvention. I didn't want to be this good girl, sorority girl, Laura anymore. I, I had spent so many years following the rules and I really wanted to bust out of that. And so to me, the absolute like, you know, picture perfect definition of busting out of that was to work at MTV, to then work on Jackass, to surround myself with these people who are considered worldwide to be quote unquote bad. I mean, I was like, I mean, y'all, I have changed. Can you see how much I have changed? I dyed my hair black. Did you see my black hair? (laughs) I dyed my hair black, like, which (laughs) looked horrifying, but I was also like, I just want everyone to know outwardly and inwardly I have changed. And you know, I'm not like making fun of my own shift. Maybe I am a little bit because I did my, my soul did shift that year. And also like, I don't know, do do people really change? Like, I feel like I'm still the same person. I'm sitting in my childhood bedroom. So how different can I really be? But I don't know. Do um, you feel like you've, you've, we've known each other for 20 years. I have lots of friends who have known me since I was young. And I feel mm-hmm. like, do we really change? Do we really reinvent? I mean, obviously our lives are so different than they were 20 years ago. Um, your laugh is exactly the same, which I love and I wouldn't change anything in this world that may be one of my top five favorite things from our year in Los Angeles just hearing you laugh really laugh which you didn't do much for the first couple of months but I mean I don't know you're still Laura I'm still Megan just 42 year old (laughs) Laura and Megan well this has been so fun to walk down memory lane to just like talk about what this time meant for us because something that I think about a lot, I've written about, I come back to, and 
you and I've talked about this privately off and on for decades now, but to be able to sort of share this conversation with the world. And I hope that people make something of their own story and the years and the seasons that changed their life. So thank you for being willing to come on the podcast and talk about it with me. Well, Laura, thank you so much for having me. And um, one of the things that we didn't say about my year in Los Angeles is that it gave me you. And um, we don't, we don't see each other enough or talk that often because we both have our busy lives, but I'm so grateful that you're in my life. And thank you so much for having me on. I love you. I love you. You're the best. Just listen to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. Remember, this is an interactive podcast. I have 10 things to tell you, and you have 10 things to tell. So take this topic to your journal or a friend or post on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. These episodes are meant to bring connection with others and ourselves and spark better conversations. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.